0: When you are deciding who to marry, you are using an algorithm. The same is true when you are looking for a parking space, playing a game of poker, or deciding whether or not to organize your closet. Algorithms to Live By is a book about the computer science of human decisions. It offers strategies for how to think through everyday life like a computer scientist. Brian Christian has a background in computer science and philosophy and is an author of Algorithms to Live By. He joins the show to explain how the same algorithms and data structures that we use for our computer programs can be applied to the real world. I really enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed Brian's book, Algorithms to Live By, and I think you will enjoy them as well. Brian Christian is a co-author of Algorithms to Live By. Brian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me. Algorithms to Live By is about the computer science of human decisions. What does that mean?
1: Um, the basic premise of the book um, is is pretty straightforward to articulate. You know, there's there's a class of problems that all of us face in everyday life, whether it's, you know, choosing the apartment we want to live in or deciding where to go out for dinner or managing our messy offices or scheduling our time. And we think of these as, in some sense, uh, intrinsically and uniquely human problems. And the message of the book is, in fact, they're not. They correspond rather profoundly to a set of some of the fundamental problems in computer science. And so this gives us a real opportunity. Uh, to learn something about how to make better decisions in our own lives by thinking about the the structural properties of the problems that we face and what the ideal optimal solutions for those problems look like.
0: And many of the algorithms that you discuss in the book are things that were designed for computer systems. How closely does our everyday life resemble a computer system?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there there are... A surprising uh, number of ways in which these, these formal problems kind of rear their head in everyday life. And so one of the examples that we make in the book is, you know, if you imagine that you are looking to, you know, rent an apartment, say, or buy a house, um, let's just go with the example of renting. So you go to a, you know, you see a listing on Craigslist, you show up, and you like the place pretty well, and you have to decide, you know, do you take this apartment or do you walk away and consider your options for another week and explore other open houses? But <clears throat> excuse me. But in doing so, you lose the opportunity to go back. And so here you're, you're in this type of a problem that's known as an optimal stopping problem. Um, so you have to make a decision at each step along the way. Do I take the option in front of me, in which case I kind of forsake all possible future options that could be better? I'll, I'll never know what else might have been out there. Or do I walk away uh, to keep exploring uh, what's out there, but in so doing, I may lose the opportunity in front of me? And so I think this is kind of a classic human dilemma. Um, it plays out not only in apartment hunting, but you know, if we're driving down the street and we see a parking space, uh, we have to ask ourselves this question of, do I take the space right here or do I keep going and, and take the gamble that there might be a better space ahead? Um, and, you know, many people have argued that it. this is also kind of a, a rough description of, of dating, right? So we're in a relationship and at some point you have to make a decision about do you commit to this person and, and not know who else might have been out there um, or do you break up in order to meet other people but you may forfeit the ability to change your mind and uh, and go back if you feel you've made a mistake. And You so- call
0: this explore versus exploit in the book.
1: Uh, this this specifically uh, is an area called optimal stopping. Oh, this is optimal stopping, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So you know pro- problems that have this structure of uh, you're presented with a sequence of opportunities, and at each step in the sequence, you either stop on the option in front of you or you continue on. Um, and so you know here here's a case where by identifying you know the the underlying cognitive or computational structure to the problem. Um, it gives us a a way of making sense of it and a way of sort of recognizing uh, the type of situation that we're in. And the the classic version of the optimal stopping problem is called the secretary problem, um, and it's it's a similar structure. You know, you have uh you're hiring a secretary and x number of candidates show up in a random order and you interview them one at a time uh at each point in time you can either hire the person or dismiss them and there's this wonderfully uh simple optimal solution which says that uh if you want to get the best chance of hiring the very best candidate uh don't commit to anyone for the first 37% of the candidate pool and then immediately hire the next person who's better than everyone you saw in the first 37%. And so you can, you can translate this principle, for, for instance, directly into the apartment hunt context. So if you've given yourself a, a month to find an apartment, and you want to give yourself the best chance of finding the very best apartment, uh, then you should spend the first 37% of your search, so in this case, 11 days if you've given yourself a month, Uh, non-committally exploring your options. And then after that initial 11 days, be prepared to immediately jump on the first thing you see that's better than what you saw in those first 11 days.
0: Now, that is, of course, a useful framing, but it's also a somewhat more rigid framing than life actually presents us with. Because very often in this type of scenario, we allocate 11 days and we decide that after 37% of that time, we're going to Uh, do, like you said, the next option that we get that's better than all the previous options we'll go with. But in real life, during the first portion of those 11 days, we might say, I don't want to live in this neighborhood at all. I don't want to live in this place at all. There are so many edge cases that occur in, in real life. So how do you contrast that rigid, algorithmic way of living life versus the richness and the complexity of the decisions of everyday life as they actually appear.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that comes up in the book, um, in every chapter, we, you know, having having broken down the essential mathematical structure of the problem and looked at the, uh, the, the things that characterize the optimal solutions to those problems, uh, there is, of course, this irresistible question, which is, Uh, Is that what people actually do when they are put in that situation? And in most cases, the answer is a resounding no. Uh, So, for example, if you put uh, undergraduates in a a psychology study into a a lab environment and you get them to do these optimal stopping type problems, uh, do they inherently kind of intuitively implement the 37% rule? Uh, The answer is no. Uh, they, They appear to do something pretty close to it. But they consistently stop earlier than they should. Uh, they appear to implement, for example, something roughly uh, roughly equivalent to a thirty one percent rule. And so uh, you can you can offer a number of explanations for w- this discrepancy. And some people have argued, you know, well, humans are just kind of risk averse. They would rather take a suboptimal thing than you know risk the chance of em- being empty handed. Um, and there's there's one particular interpretation of the data that I find, <clears throat> excuse me, that I find particularly interesting, which is uh, someone had a look at the, at the raw data from this particular experiment, and they found that uh, human judgment matches up really closely to the optimal strategy if you are assessing, let's say, a 1% utility penalty for each additional option considered. and they they found well this is weird because we there there was no such penalty so why were people acting as though there was and i think a fair answer to that is well they're they're human (laughs) they they're they're real people doing a, a fairly boring and repetitive uh psychology experiment and they would just as soon be be done with that rather than prolonging the experiment and so you know we my Collaborator Tom and I talked to some of the psychologists that have done these experiments, and they say, "Yeah, you know, it's 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 understandable that the subjects just get kind of bored and restless, but we don't have a way to rigorously model that." Um, And so here's a case where, you know, whenever there's a discrepancy between the formal prediction and actual human behavior, uh, you you have an opportunity to ask this question of who's wrong. Are the people wrong, or are the models wrong? And in many cases, we actually end up coming down on the side of human intuition and saying it seems like what's happening is people are implementing a sensible solution to a subtler version of the problem than the one that the experimenters thought they were solving.
0: Certainly. Okay, so let's talk about some of the other fundamental questions that you look at in Algorithms to Live By. One is the trade-off between space and time. This is a classical computer science trade-off exchange. Computer scientists understand this trade-off. How does the trade-off between space and time manifest in our everyday world?
1: Um I think the most clear example um would be something like uh you know organization, right? Like your your home office organization and so forth. Um now, ideally, you know, you uh, let's think about this. I mean, in some ways, there's there's an even earlier trade off that you have to make, which is between effectively between time and time. So, you know, in, in a home organization context, uh, we talk about what's called the, the search sort trade off. Um, so this is something that uh, comes up in in computer science context related to um, you know, uh, database uh, management, for example. Um, and th- this also relates to the space-time trade-off. So, you know, if you're, if you're a database administrator, um, you have this question of what, what indexes do you implement in your database? You know, do you, do you put in a, an index for every possible column in every possible table? Um, well, that's going to consume extra space. Uh, because you're going to have to store those indexes, it's also going to consume extra time on every um, insert and delete because you're now also going to have to update the index. Um, but as a result, you know the the upside of that trade off is that it becomes much easier to find things. And so the way that a computer scientist would approach a problem like this is to say, well, you know, is it is it going to take us more time to create this index, then we are going to save down the road by having the index. And so this is a principle that we raise in the context of, you know, uh, whether or not to alphabetize your bookshelf, for example. You know, that there is this question of, uh, is, it, is it going to take you more time to get organized than you will save by being organized? Um, and in many in many domestic contexts, uh, we we argue that 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 is, in fact, exactly what happens. And so uh, I think counterintuitively to a lot of people, you know, we, we think of computers as the paragons of, you know, orderliness. But in fact, um, you know, if, if you look at how uh, caching uh, schemes work, um, computers are, are much messier than uh, than they let on. And uh, moreover, I think computer science gives us, uh, perhaps surprisingly, the, the framework and the language with which to articulate the, the pro-mess argument, um, that sometimes sometimes mess is not just the easy choice, but it is, in fact, the optimal choice. In computer science, we're often
0: talking about data structures along with our algorithms. And many times the data structure lets us cheat our way out of uh, an, an algorithm that might have been seemingly impossible. Like I, I think of the hash map as the classic example of this. Where It's like a hash map is just like cheating compared to all of the things that you can do without or what you're capable of doing without a hash map. But there's not really a, a you know, I don't, when I think about it, maybe you, you can say something different, but when I think about a hash map, I don't think there's like a, uh, a logical construct in the real world that's that maps to a hash map. So, are, are there data structures to live by, or, or are no. uh, you know, do, uh, is is algorithms to live by uh, what we're limited to in the real world?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I was I was reminded of um, when Tom and I were uh, doing some of the interviews for this book. We went we went up to Harvard. And we talked with Michael Mittzenmacher, who is uh, an expert on hashing algorithms. And he uh, he insisted on, on taking the interview outside of his office because it was full of this chaotic, uh, you know, mess of papers that he did not want to disturb in any way, lest it upset his, you know, highly precise caching system uh, or hashing system, I should say, uh, in which, you know, he... Just knew where every object would be found if it were there, um, so I think that's one of the ironies of human life, which is that you know the the thing that most uh, mimics this kind of order of one hash lookup system is is chaos. But as long as you as long as you remember where everything is in that chaos then you're fine. Of course, if you forget, then you have to look through it at random and and you're (laughs) now you're living in the order of n world. Um, but, um, you know, to your question of, of how data structures work. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you, if you think about something like a bookshelf, um, there's, uh, there's this open question of to what do, you know, what, what data structure best, um, describes a bookshelf, you know, um, an alphabetized bookshelf is a little bit like, you know, uh, a binary tree because if you're looking for a book that's, you know, an M or an N, you you know to look in the middle, and then if you know you know to look to the left or right of that, and um, you can kind of intuit your way towards the item. Uh, and it, it's it's not exactly clear how that maps to a data structure where you have a you have a basic idea of where to where to index it. Um, the other thing that we talk about in the context of bookshelf organization is, um, you know, typically uh, if you want to if you want to make some optimality argument about a particular algorithm, you're you're minimizing you know the total number of operations. But there's there's not always a clear separation between the types of operations that you're talking about. So, for example, um if I'm trying to organize my bookshelf, I'm trading off the the amount of time it will take me to kind of insertion sort these books into place versus the amount of effort it will take me to scan the spines for something I'm looking for later. Um, but there's a fundamental disconnect, which is that, i 'm uh I'm sorting with my hands, which are orders of magnitude slower than my eyes and i'm I'm searching with my eyes um so there's a little bit of an apples to oranges thing that's happening there um, another one of the interviews that Tom and I did uh was um David Carger at MIT who talks about um data structures and and we had a a long conversation about you know Exactly. To what degree do uh, you know human physical object uh, schemes map to some of the canonical data structures in computer science? And you know, it's kind of an interesting open question.
0: Yeah. So, one of the algorithms that I think of as a just a brilliant merger of algorithms and data structures is Dijkstra's algorithm, which is you know uses uh, priority queues in a very creative way and you know, obviously has, it's an efficient way of finding the, I think, what is it, the shortest path between a node, a source node, and all destination nodes. Um, Dijkstra's algorithm seemed like this, just, like, how would you come up with Dijkstra's algorithm? So, when you were doing research for this book, and you're looking at the different uh, computer scientists who solved these really hard problems, um, you talk about Dijkstra some in the book, but was there something unique about Dijkstra? Was like I, he was very literary. He wrote a lot. I know. Um, maybe you could give some information about Dijkstra and how it compares to other, how he compares to other computer scientists, and what your thoughts on Dijkstra's algorithm are.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dijkstra's algorithm is very near and dear to my heart because one of my early computer science projects when I was an undergrad um, was I looked at um, I looked at uh, this. Uh, data structure for language called WordNet, um, which someone, excuse me, someone took the trouble to kind of semantically categorize all the words in English, you know, into this tree structure of, you know, a, a, a collie is a dog is a mammal is an animal is a physical thing or you know, something like that, um, and so it occurred to me that you could use Dijkstra's algorithm. To traverse WordNet and find uh, some numerical representation of the similarity between pairs of words, right? So, how many uh, how many hops is dog from frisbee or something like this? Um, and this put the idea in my head that you could characterize um, human speech by looking at you know the the distribution of uh, you know the word net distance between neighboring words. Uh, and so I, I ended up doing a research project where I took the uh, Shakespeare, uh, uh, some control group of, of normal, uh, you know, just regular human beings uh, versus Shakespeare versus the speech of schizophrenics. Um, and I, within each corpus, I calculated, you know, various metrics using Dijkstra's Algorithm uh, to to connect the different adjacent pairs of words in WordNet, and it was able to find statistically significant differences uh, between all three sets of uh, of data. So um, I remember <laughs> vividly that uh, my computer spent you know the better part of th- the summer just grinding away computing Dijkstra's shortest path on you know tens of thousands of <laughs> of words. Um, I mean, I I think um, you know. There's there's no doubt that Dykstra is, is one of the brilliant minds. Of, even you know, even among you know, some of the canonical computer scientists.
0: I mean, I, I did an interview with Leslie Lamport uh, a couple years ago, and he referred to Dykstra as being um, really a, a formative influence in. His own work, and when I think about other uh, people who have come up with very creative algorithms that are solutions to like just these brilliant solutions that are super creative to really really hard important problems, Leslie Lamport certainly falls into that category as well. Um, and and yeah, regarding what you said about Dexter, like uh, that 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 algorithm. Um, there was a, a show I did recently about um, Netflix. Netflix's movie recommendation algorithms how it looks these days and uh, they build maps of they build things that look like 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 maps of uh, you know locations but it's movies and they 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 run Dijkstra's on Hmm. movies to find you know the nearest neighbors uh, or the you know you know the the things that would be geographic not geographically but um (laughs) you know, the, <laughs> well
1: yeah geographically in some weird space yeah. right
0: exactly um, so it's it is it, it's not just like this just traveling salesman in the sense of a physical uh you know physical location type of algorithm solution it's uh it's, it's applicable to this very rich set of of problems um, so i want to shift to something and i just totally. want to just oh, oh, yeah. go ahead I-
1: I just want to add on to that. I mean, the the other thing that comes to my mind when I think about Dijkstra is the famous "go to considered harmful." Um, you know that he was one of the people thinking about um, the the structure of programming itself. Um, and this, you know, this makes me think of um, we had actually wanted to include a, a chapter in the book. It, it ended up um, not making it into the, the final printing, but. Uh, we had a section that looked at data structures and you know depth first search versus breadth first search um and the the ways in which you could consider you know the the execution of a program itself as being kind of a, a traversal uh, basically a depth first you know traversal um through the code uh and i think there's there's really something, you know, critical about these moments in the history of computer science where, you know, the the move towards structured programming, the move towards object-oriented programming, the move towards uh, test-driven development and so forth, where people have kind of stepped back and said, you know, okay, we, we're, we're sort of bumping up into the maximum complexity of the, the You know the programs that we can write relative to the amount of complexity that the human mind can fit uh, into its working memory at a time. You know how can we how can we try to be more disciplined about the way that we're writing code, such that it you know enables us to write uh, ever more complex systems and still feel like we're we're in some sort of control. So I associate that. in, in large part with Dijkstra also. And I think that's that's something that has influenced my thinking in terms mm-hmm. of I, you know, by, by analogy, I think of myself uh, as being kind of like a, a CPU that's executing this, um, you know, c- series of instructions. And, you know, go to considered harmful is kind of uh, something that I think about in terms of... Um, you know, if I'm if I'm interrupted by a task, do I then resume the previous task, or do do I just sort of end up going off on some tangent? Um, so I tr- I try to apply the same discipline to my own you know time management that one would to thinking about the structure of a program. So that that for me is the other sort of interesting dimension of Dijkstra's work that I I find myself thinking about again and again.
0: You explore poker from a variety of angles in algorithms to live by what is useful about poker as a mechanism to look at algorithms through i mean i think
1: game theoretically um there's a couple interesting things about poker and it it, as you say it comes up in a few different points in the book and um one of the places that it comes up is uh our chapter on sorting and the the reason we get into poker there, um, there's a there's a whole branch of CS theory uh, within sorting on what's called minimum comparison sorting. So how you know if you've got ten ten items, I mean the the classic way of thinking about it is you have uh, twelve items of unknown weight. You know they're they're all the same size. They have diff- they weigh different amounts. Um, and you have a little scale, and you want to arrange these items from lightest to heaviest. Uh, what is the absolute fewest number of times that you can use that scale uh, in order to confidently sort all of the all of these objects? Um, and so the the passionate uh, listener uh, is encouraged to check out uh, Donald Knuth's Tome, uh, The Art of Computer Programming, I think it's volume three, is, is entirely dedicated to sorting and searching theory. Um, what we look at in the book is, are there cases where, in effect, nature uh, implements something that's close to a minimum comparison sort? And so uh, the the world of what's called uh, heads-up cash games uh, in poker offers us one such Uh, case study and so um heads up poker is just one-on-one uh and cash game poker means uh we're not we're not playing for some abstract you know chips that map in a sort of non-one-to-one way to money we're we're just playing for actual money so when i when i wager ten thousand dollars that's ten thousand actual dollars um so, actually, a, a former classmate of mine in the computer science program at Brown, Isaac Haxton, uh, has gone on to be one of the consensus, you know, top five uh, heads-up cash game poker players in the world. And so, I spent a bunch of time talking to him about what is that like, what's the thought process like, and he said something really interesting to me that's that stuck with me, which was, um, in in many ways, the critical skill, the single most important skill of any poker player uh, is not being good at poker it is knowing exactly how good at poker you are if you are the third best player in the world but you insist on playing the first and second best player in the world, uh, you will go bankrupt and uh, you will not have a career and so uh, that for me was just a completely fascinating insight and it it leads one to wonder uh, why top p- poker players agree to play each other, because there's actually a, a very high degree of consensus uh, within the poker community of what the what the stack rank of the top 20, let's say, people are. Um, and in fact, this is what you see. You often see, you know the the number one player issues a challenge to the number two guy who declines. (laughs) He then in turn issues a challenge to the number three guy who declines uh, and so on and so forth. And there's actually this funny um, stasis that you see at the the top levels of the game. And so whenever two people agree to play, you know, heads up cash poker, it can only be because they both feel that they are the superior player. Um, And so this, I think, Corresponds really nicely to some of this theory that exists in the in the world of sorting, on you know what what is the absolute fewest number of head-to-head comparisons that are necessary to produce a stable hierarchy, um, and we also look at this question in in uh, primatology. There, you know, if if you look at dominance hierarchies in uh, chimpanzees and macaques and so forth. Um, you find that, and there are people who have done done work on this. You find that, uh, you know, nature appears to implement something close to an optimal, you know, minimum comparison sort. Because in these cases, um, you know, the the comparator operation uh, is is simply that the the primates literally come to physical blows. And so, you know, it's, it's in the interest of the entire tribe uh, that that happens the minimum number of times and that a stable hierarchy results. And so I think, I think it's quite interesting to try to bridge the gap between this seemingly arcane theory um, and the natural world around us and, and, and try to recognize cases where... Um, you know, something akin to a sorting algorithm is taking place, uh, whether we, we recognize it immediately or not.
0: Yeah, I used to play a lot of poker. I actually played against Isaac Haxton a number of times, and he's, uh, that guy is quite a fearsome player. But it's, you know, you know it's interesting because, you know, uh, kind of as heads up, cash games were really catching on in the online world, um, you know, they're... There was a lot of six-player games, and uh, there were some nine-player games around that time when win Heads Up was really catching on, and it was funny because the people who were really dominant at Heads Up, uh, when they would come and sit down at six-player games, they would have such an influence on the table. It was like the gravity in the table would shift towards that player, whether it was a uh, you know, real or kind of a manufactured effect, like the that that dominance hierarchy that you're talking about, um, is, is quite quite an interesting um, effect. And, and I know when when I was coming up uh, as a poker player, I remember feeling somewhat ashamed that my my approach to the game felt very al- algorithmic. Like I had just read a bunch of books, and I was reading stuff online, and I was basically copying what other people did. Um, But, you know, in reading your book, I was thinking about it as like, you know, poker is just algorithmic. Like, you you should have an algorithm. If you don't have an algorithm, you should, you know, you should probably figure one out. You don't want to be, you know, it's it's, it's actually not a game of improvisation. There is some elements of improvisation, but in a perfect world, you would have every single point of the decision tree mapped out because there is a finite number of decisions that you can make in a given hand it's like a it's like you have a state machine that gets generated after every hand and you should be able to traverse that uh, that state machine um, but it's interesting you know another interesting thing is that uh, there are the there are certain players who uh, have c- have come up through the ranks uh, this guy Isildur comes to mind they come up through the ranks doing things that are totally unconventional and they're so outside the bounds of what the typical players are doing, like they'll do things like overbet the pot or, uh, or, you know, um, you know, min raise every, uh, every open in a heads up game. And, uh, and sometimes this, you know, throws off the, the experienced players. I don't think this happens as much anymore because the heads up heads up, no limit has been explored so thoroughly. Um, but it is interesting that, that the algorithms that the top players developed were often a product of, The previous algorithms that had come before them because you're always just developing an algorithm that is simply a counter strategy to the other algorithms that are pre-existent
1: yeah and you would expect i mean at least in a purely theoretical sense you would expect the system to drift towards some nash equilibrium where there is no longer any room for anyone to you know innovate strategically um it's just reached uh some kind of static point where, you know, everyone's strategy is as optimum as it can get given the ecosystem of other strategies that exists. Um, and, you know, this this is actually something of an open question within game theory is, um, you know, everyone, everyone knows these famous theorems that, you know, a, a Nash equilibrium always exists in a zero-sum game. Um, but computer scientists have been able to... Uh, really push game theory uh, into a new uh, set of questions, and so, for example, in in our chapter on game theory, we we talked to Christos Papadimitriou, who's one of the people, um, uh, one of the theoretical computer scientists that's asking uh, a fresh set of questions about Nash equilibria. Which is, okay, you know, we have this famous theorem that says they always exist, um, <clears throat> but as a computer scientist. Uh, I don't, you know, in some sense, it's, it's unsatisfying to simply know that it's out there, you know, to tell me how to find it. Um, what, what is the uh, complexity associated with, uh, you know, what's the computational effort required, let's say, to find uh, where the Nash equilibria are? Um, and the sobering result is that it turns out that in, in most cases, finding Nash equilibria uh, is effectively intractable. And so it, it throws the, I mean, this, this to me is a, is a fascinating development because it throws the, um, the utility of Nash Equilibria as a concept kind of out the window, which is to say, um, you know, if, if this stable point exists, but none of the players in the game uh, can find it, uh, well, then how useful is that equilibrium uh, as a predictor of, of the actual behavior of the players in, in the game. Not to mention people tilt all the time,
0: and that throws off the ability to say, like, okay, how close are we reaching, how close are we as a pair of heads-up players to reaching Nash equilibrium? You know, if somebody's tilting, that kind of throws things off. Yeah,
1: right. And, and the in some sense, <laughs> that... Uh, the existence of genuine tilt is kind of a critical part of what keeps the game interesting because that that makes it possible to uh, bluff that one is tilting or to you know that if someone appears to be tilting you have to ask yourself whether it's for real or not or or what you want to do about it.
0: You write a little bit about the flash crash and the 2008 crisis. And I think of these as uh, interesting examples of herd mentality and the, well, the cross section of herd mentality and gambling. What are the algorithmic lessons and the lessons about human nature that you take away from the market turmoil of, you know, the two, 2000, I don't know, 2007 through 20. 2009 or whenever that period of time you're looking at is.
1: Yeah. And then the the flash crash was like 2010, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think the the narrative that always seems to get trotted out in the press after something like this um, has the character of figuring out who was the bad actor or um, who... (laughs) Who's to blame, or who made the mistake, whether through malintent or just incompetence? Okay. Um, and the story that you get from looking at th- these sorts of things in, in game theoretic terms—the um, framework that I think is the most interesting—is uh, comes from the early '90s, and it, it's this idea of informational cascades. And um, the basic idea of an informational cascade, so I'll, I'll give you the kind of the, the toy example that they use in, in the literature, which is, um, let's say you've got two, uh, two urns, uh, and one, one has mostly blue balls in it, and one has mostly red balls in it, um, and uh, there's, there's a bunch of people in a, in a line, and each person gets to go up uh, to the urn. Uh, which, could, which could be one of these two different urns. Someone goes up to it and they pull a ball out at random. They get to observe that ball, but no one else does. And then they have to say uh, whether they think that this was the mostly red urn or the mostly blue urn. And so the, the critical thing here is that all of the other people uh, get to know that person's guess, but they don't get to know what that person actually saw. And so this is the difference between what's called private information and public information. Uh, so let's just say for the sake of argument that, um, you know, it's the, let's say the urn is uh, two-thirds blue and one-third red. Um, okay, well, that means that there's a, a one in nine chance that the first two people both saw red balls, even though the urn is mostly blue. So that's, there's a one in nine chance of that happening. And if that happens, then the third person goes up to the urn, and let's say they pull out a blue ball, but they say to themselves, well, both of the previous people gave the prediction that it was the red urn. So even though I have private information that goes against that, it's still rational to say that we're dealing with the uh, with the red urn, even though I've got a blue ball in my hand. Um, and so that person puts that blue ball back and they say, Okay, my prediction is still that it's the red urn. Um, And so the fourth person goes up, and we've now created what's called an informational cascade, which is there's no amount of private information that's going to overcome the amount of public information. So the fourth person goes up, they draw a blue ball, but they still vote red, because they have seen three previous people vote red. You know, the fifth person, the sixth person, so on and so forth. And so you can see what happens here, which is there was a there's a one in nine chance of setting off this uh, chain reaction that results in basically infinite misinformation. Um, This is kind of like the emperor has no clothes type of thing where you say, well, uh, he looks naked to me, but everyone else seems to be saying that he's clothed. So I'm going to discount my private information.
0: And this is what happened in the flash crash.
1: Yeah, and I think it, I think this offers a, a sort of a game theoretic framework for bubbles in general, which is you know let's say I'm I'm looking at buying a, an asset or let's just say a house right let's say I'm I'm thinking about buying a house and it costs a million dollars, and personally I don't think it's worth a million dollars, but everyone else seems to think it's worth more than a million dollars or or so I believe based on their behavior in the market, so I buy it because I think well. Uh, as long as I can find someone else who believes it's worth that, then it doesn't really matter what I think. Um, but I've made an error here, which is that I've I have assumed that other people's behavior is indicative of their beliefs, even though my behavior is not indicative of my belief. Um, and so this is a case where, you know, this is how bubble, bubbles form, basically. And the, the sobering uh, story that you get by, you know, looking at the literature here is that you know as i as I said at the beginning we we always want to know who was the bad actor, who made the mistake, who was acting in bad faith or irrationally, and in many cases, the answer can be no one um that I think yeah this this offers a framework for uh what what Tom and I refer to in the book as the the tragic rationality of bubbles that that it there's, there's no bad actor. It may just be a, a cruel game. It may just be that this is, this is the rules and of the game. And
0: how do you recognize that? If you're in the middle of it, whether you feel like you're in the middle of a bubble of uh, mortgage-backed securities or online advertising, uh, what is what's what's the algorithm for getting out of it or for identifying that you are... Uh, in a bubble so that perhaps you can make some kind of contrarian bet and take advantage of it
1: yeah i mean i think the the first thing is just recognizing the difference between belief and action so this is this is for me just a very key thing is um uh being reluctant to make inferences about someone's actual beliefs based on what they do um And, uh, you know, this also comes up in the context of um, oil drilling rights. You sometimes get these weird bubbles where, you know, uh, all these different oil companies are are engaged in a bidding war over a tract of land that actually no no one's private survey indicates is rich in oil. Uh, But they infer from the bidding behavior of the other parties that the other people do think it's rich with oil. Um, And so they think, well... Their studies might be better than ours, so we'll bid on it anyway. And and you get a, a similar cycle that just kind of spirals um, arbitrarily. So I think the first thing is just recognizing that there is this gap between belief and action. Um, and and not being so quick to, to make that inferential leap, I think, is part of it. Um, the other part of it is recognizing that um, if you are contrarian, if you're that person that stubbornly doesn't uh buy the asset because you just don't think it's worth that much even though you're aware that there's kind of a general consensus that it is um you are you are conferring a uh a social benefit uh you are um there there is something in a way altruistic about that kind of behavior um, that the the person who refuses to go along with the herd uh, will probably, you know, lose money on average or be wrong more on average than the people that take that information into account. Um, but on the other hand, they may be part of uh, part of the, the kind of the mechanism that keeps the system from going totally off the rails.
0: Yeah, agreed. So um, <clears throat> you know, you got five minutes or so left. Um, What are the problems or the difficulties in your everyday life that you find are difficult to solve algorithmically? Is there a class of problems that are characteristically not easy to apply an algorithm to?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's that's a great question. I usually get the inverse of the question, is, is most people who uh, ask me about the book say, give me an example of where you apply this stuff to your own life. So I like that your question is, uh, tell me where it fails to apply. So uh, I think one of the thorniest areas in human life is time management. Um, and, you know, we, we have a chapter in the book that's on scheduling theory and... Uh, there are There are two basic problems in scheduling theory um one is that uh so the 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 typical metric that you would want to optimize if you're if you're doing scheduling is what's called the make span, which just refers to the total amount of time it's going to take you to do all the stuff and so it, that's just the most natural metric you'd want to minimize is like how do I just finish everything as quickly as possible? Uh, there's this little bit of a paradox in the in the theory, which is um, specifically in the area of single machine scheduling where you just have one you have one machine, one worker or whatever that's going to do all the work um, and if you're if you're committed to doing all of the work, then it actually uh, doesn't matter what order you do it in because there's only one person to do it and they have to do it all. So it does not matter what order you do the work in, the make span will be the same. Um, and so this is a, this is kind of an interesting anti-result or a negative result, if you will. And what that means is that the, the people who are interested in the field of single machine scheduling need to think about, they need to think creatively about other metrics uh that they would want to optimize for in order to get some kind of optimal strategy uh, to come out, because otherwise you just get this answer that it doesn't matter what you do. Um, and so people uh, have have come up with all sorts of different metrics. You know, if you want to if you want to minimize the maximum lateness of any given job relative to its due date, then there's this policy called earliest due date, which just says do things in the order that they're due. <laughs> That's pretty intuitive, but it, it turns out to be optimal. Um, if you want to minimize what's called the sum of completion times, which is the the total amount of time that every task is outstanding, uh, summed over all the tasks, then the optimum algorithm turns out to be this thing that's called SPT, shortest processing time, which just means do the easiest things first and make your way up to the hardest things, which again is intuitive, but it's cool to know that there's an optimality result there, um, and the point that we make in the book is, uh, you know, there's this idiom that says a man with one watch knows what time it is. A man with two watches is never sure. And I've always loved that quote. And I think it sort of rears its head here, which is to say, you know, in single machine scheduling, there, there is not a single optimum uh, approach, but uh, a plethora depending on how you want to frame uh, the thing that you're that you're trying to do. And so this is something that I think a lot of, you know, bestseller self-help books on time management miss, is that, you know, if we can't even begin to talk about the right answer uh, to the question of what should I do next, until we have gone much farther in articulating exactly what the question is that we're asking. Um, And that's something I, for me, that's been an interesting takeaway when I just think about my own life. Which is, um, I think it's pretty, it's pretty typical that we find ourselves in a situation of saying, you know, what, what do I do now? What do I do next? Um, how do I plan my day? Um, and in many ways, we're, we're jumping the gun. We are leapfrogging the uh, essential first question, which is, what exactly am I trying to do? Am I trying to get the most stuff crossed off of my list as quickly as possible? Am I trying to make sure that nothing goes too far overdue? um, you know, what, what, what exactly are my aims? And I think, uh, I, uh, you know, personally, I'm probably as guilty as anyone in terms of, uh, you know, I don't always, um, I don't always take the step of articulating that to myself. And so that it's been a nice reminder to, to kind of take that first step. So what are you working on these days? Uh, I am now working on, uh, the beginnings of, uh, a new project which looks at the intersection of machine learning and ethics um so i think we're at a really interesting moment um in in you know the, the progress both of, of technology and of policy we are increasingly turning over more and more aspects of you know the functioning of society such as the news cycle yeah actually that's a perfect example yeah i mean the the one that i had in my mind was um there was a the investigative report that came out a couple of weeks ago looking at um, the algorithms that predict uh, prisoner uh, recidivism and, you know, assign a, a kind of a risk to reoffend uh, that is now being used by, by human judges as a, a way to figure out who should, which prisoners should get parole and, and who should be released and so forth. Um, And there was a bunch of systematic, in this case, I think racial bias that was found um, in this algorithm. And there's I think we're really at this interesting crossroads where we have a lot of work to do to figure out how to translate the the values that we have as a society of equality and fairness and justice and opportunity um, into, uh, you know, Algorithmic terms. How do we how do we put uh, what are the exact constraints that we want to put on this you know statistical system or this machine learning system in order to feel confident that um, the recommendations that it's spitting out uh, conform to our 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 set of values? I think that's kind of an an open research problem and it's also an open policy problem. And we're we're sort of hurtling into. Uh, A world in which we need answers pretty quickly because this stuff is uh is getting deployed faster than we can figure out um you know on on the theory side exactly how to make sure it's doing what we want so that that to me is a really really interesting area and i think there's a lot to be said about that
0: cool well i look forward to seeing what fruits that work bears Uh, i hope everybody checks out algorithms to live
1: by So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's been a pleasure.